Amen. Now listen to the word of the Lord from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, teach us this morning from your word, from all creation, from your very heart that beats for us. Would you teach us something beautiful today? In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting this new series on the Psalms, and we're starting at the end with the crescendo of the Psalms, which is Psalm 150. So if you look, if you have your Bible open and you look from uh, Psalm 146 to 147 to 148 to 149, then to 150, every single one of them begins with the phrase, praise the Lord. And it's almost as if Psalm 150 just can't stop saying it because that is repeated over and over. Life is about praising the Lord. So why are we doing the Psalms? Why are we going to take this much time over the next 19 or 20 weeks to do the Psalms? There's a lot of good reasons to do the Psalms, but just a couple of them are, first, Jesus loved the Psalms. He quoted the Psalms more than any other section of Scripture. If you read the New Testament and you see the footnotes that are mentioned next to a lot of the things that Jesus says, often he was quoting the Psalms. Because as Javier said earlier, they are the songs of the scriptures. They were designed, many of them, to be sung, to have music that goes with them. They're also the heartfelt prayers of the scriptures. And for those that love poetry, they are the poetical, beautiful section of the scriptures. If you were to read this in Hebrew, there's a lot of rhyme and rhythm and alliteration. So much creativity goes into the Psalms. And in times like today or the last several years where so much has changed in our world, we can read the Psalms and not feel crazy because we see people in the Psalms that are dealing with hard things and voicing their struggles back to God and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what you're doing, but still I can come to the end and say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Psalms are a symphony of praise. That's, that's the common thread we're going to be drawing out in all these Psalms is the symphony of praise that is this beautiful book in the middle of the Bible, right in the heart of the scriptures. Praise is mentioned at least 134 times in the Psalms. And I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, but I began to look. There's a lot of different ways that Hebrew writers would talk about praise. They use different words. I have at least seven here that I could find that use praise in all these different types of ways. Some of them are more like the idea of like you're throwing something up to God. Some of them are more about singing. Some of them are more about thanksgiving. Some of them are more about congratulating or commending God. 
Some of them are about lifting high or exalting, like we sang earlier. All those often get summarized in our English versions as praise. Because when you think about it, that's what praise is. It's, it's all those things put into one. And we get to unpack a lot of those this morning and understand it. But there's one Hebrew word that Psalm 150 exclusively uses. So if you look at Psalm 150, every time you see the word praise in Psalm 150, it's not seven different Hebrew words, it's one Hebrew word. Do you know what the word is? Hallelujah. Hallel. And we get this word, hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lord. Hallelujah is one of those words that it's probably unhelpful to try to define it because it kind of self-explains itself, doesn't it? Hallelujah to the Lord. We want to boast in the Lord of all things. The Psalms are a symphony of hallelujah or a symphony of praise. Let's just, as we begin this morning, particularly thinking about the theme of praise, let's just consider for a moment what praise really is. Again, without trying to over-define it. Um, I was thinking about praise, and I was thinking about symphony this morning. Not this morning, this week as I was preparing. And I was thinking about, I, we had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which uh, I had never had the opportunity to do in other places I lived. And yet, in Boston, it's a big deal. And we had a friend that uh, got us tickets a few years ago. And I remember walking into that beautiful hall in Boston. Maybe some of you have had the chance to go as well. And I remember being overwhelmed by the fullness of musical beauty that hit our ears. I had never heard such fullness. I think that, that was the word that resounded to me, fullness. It felt like every direction was just, it was a feast musically for our ears. It was comprehensive. It was majestic. You know, we didn't think much about where our seats were. We just went and sat down. And I think it doesn't matter where you sit necessarily to get that fullness. You experience it. But what one, what one seasoned visitor of the orchestra and the symphony told me is they said it's actually best if you sit in the very, very back. Because you get to hear it all blend together in fullness. Which is opposite, right, of going to a football game. You want to sit front row if possible. Um, the further away you kind of they look like little dots. But you see the symphony is not about looking at the characters, it's about listening to the music, the fullness of it. If you sit too close to the symphony, all you'll hear is the trombone section or something that just you just hear that more and you miss the fullness and the comprehensiveness of the sound. And as Christians too, sometimes we in our little small congregations, hear just one section of God's beautiful symphony of praise. And so for us in Salem, I don't know if it's the trombone section, it's some kind of section that we get to hear up close and personal through our own little context, which is beautiful in its own right. But sometimes it's good for us to take a summer or a season and to try to take a big step back, sit in the back row, and hear the full sound again, and be reminded of what God is doing all through creation. And that's what the Psalms help us to do, to sit in the back and to take in the comprehensive, unforced response to the unmatched creator 
in unrestrained diversity from an undivided people. That's my definition for praise this morning. Let me say it again. Praise is the unforced response to an unmatched creator in unrestrained diversity from an undivided people. It's a mouthful. So let's take it bit by bit. Verse one shows us that praise is an unforced response. You see, it just, it just jumps into it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Unforced means that praise is everywhere throughout creation. Praise is not something that you have to be told to do. Praise is just something that you do that is unforced as a response to something that is praiseworthy. When you see something beautiful, you respond to it by saying, that is beautiful, or by telling someone that is beautiful. And praise is everywhere throughout creation. And it's really easy on a, on a May 1st Sunday morning with not a cloud in the sky and the warm sun beating down you to say that praise is unforced. It just, it beckons itself to you. It says here that praise to God is in his sanctuary, which you could say as praise is designed for places of worship. This is literally a sanctuary, a place that is set apart for the praise of God, for the worship of his name. And so you come here on a Sunday morning expecting praise, to give praise to God. That is an expectation you've come to. And in America, we talk about the freedom to worship in places like this publicly, and that is a gift. But we think about majestic cathedrals or church plants that rent out a warehouse or New England churches that sit on a beautiful green common with a white steeple or even school cafeterias where new churches are meeting. It doesn't matter what the building looks like. If there's a space where worship of God is happening and God's people have gathered, that is a sanctuary of praise. Praise God for those places where we can go once a week for those Sabbath days to gather together. That is the purpose of the church's existence. The reason you are here is because God has designed a people to form together to praise his name in response to who he is. But as I told our friends as we were coming in to the building this morning, I said, why didn't we just worship outside today? Because we really could have done that today on a beautiful day. And it's not just the gathering itself, but it's just the reality that when you leave this place in 30 minutes and go back to your places of, of home or wherever you're doing today, you can praise God in his majestic heavens, in his mighty heavens. Praise of God is everywhere. In workplaces, in schools, on mountaintops, in homes, in your car, on your commute to work, on sports field, on boats. Even in outer space, you can praise the living God, which just to remind you when Buzz Aldrin was landing on the moon before he got out onto the surface of the moon. Do you know what he did? He took communion, which was what we will do later today as well. But he took that time as one of the first people in outer space before he stepped on the foot of the moon to take communion together. Just a great reminder of God's Praiseworthy creation extends beyond what we'll ever be able to experience because his universe is vast. 
Praise is unforced, meaning that it's not coerced. All creation exists for the glory of God and for his praise, and it happens freely with no pressure. I can't force you to worship. It's a response. Um, And I just was thinking this week of just the beauty of creation. And there's even a beach nearby that sings. Has anybody ever been to the beach that sings in our area? It's called Singing Beach in Manchester because when you walk on the sand, it literally makes a noise that prompted people long ago to call it the Singing Beach. Just a small reminder that creation cries out in beauty to God. Romans 8 puts it in another way, you know, because we are living in a broken world too, and we realize that. We've been fractured by sin. Romans talks about the reality that all of creation is groaning together awaiting the new creation because it's just it feels like it's being held back by sin it's just longing to have this unrestrained response to god but we live in a broken world and so we're waiting for that final day where it can just burst out and give everything that it wants isaiah 55 gives us a beautiful reminder of what that day will look like it says you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills before you will break into singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And we get glimmers of that even today. It's a response from God. It's a response to God of what he is already shining down to us, the beauty of an amazing creation. In worship services, in sanctuaries, but everywhere, praise exists to the glory of God because that's how he created the world, to the praise of his glory. So it's an unforced response. Secondly, verse two, to an unmatched creator. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Before I even get to those things, mighty deeds and excellent greatness, just notice that praise here, every time it's mentioned in Psalm 150 as a whole, is not just general. It's praise the Lord. Praise him. It's always directed towards God himself. Good reminder that praise goes to God alone. And it goes to God alone because he is, as I'm saying here, unmatched, unrivaled, no competitor. God is the one who is worthy of praise now because of his mighty deeds and according to his excellent greatness. Mighty deeds, meaning that he has proven himself through action in the world and in the lives of you and me who know Christ and have been redeemed by him. We've seen his activity in our life. And that is praiseworthy affection that goes out from us to him. Creation, pursuit, way-making, redemption, salvation, new creation. God is gracious and loving, kind and compassionate, intentional and listening. Who can match that? I love Isaiah. Who in, we just read from Isaiah a moment ago, but he multiple times says, where is there a God like our God? Where is there one who is majestic in splendor like this God? He is the one who stretched the heavens out. He laid the foundations of all things. And that alone makes him praiseworthy because he's unmatched. 
but he's unmatched in his excellent greatness as well. Not just what he does, but then who he is, his character. Each of these are a sermon in their own, right? You could do a whole sermon series forever on the character of God himself. But the psalmist just says he is excellently great. Not just great, but excellently great. Worthy of it all. I mean, you could find a hundred places to get this backed up, but just a couple pages before, Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or as I'm saying, unmatched. You can't get to the bottom of the greatness of God. It's just who he is. He's worthy of praise, worthy of greatness, worthy of all praise and honor, glory and dominion. Third, he's praised in unrestrained diversity. These are just ways to explain what the text already says, by the way. You could forget these later and that's fine. Just read Psalm 150 again. But the way I'm describing it is unrestrained diversity, meaning let it out however you can. And so for ancient Israelites writing this poem, however many centuries ago, they talk about it with regards to the diversity of instruments that they could think of. And they list here seven or eight different types of sounds and instruments that they chose to use. So they talk about trumpet sound and lute and harp, tambourine and dance, strings and pipe, sounding cymbals, loud clashing cymbals. You put it all together and it's a symphony of praise that is unrestrained. Whenever you see God for who he is and you're not forced into it, but just say, I want to praise that God because of who he is and what he's done for me. You do it however you can in whatever way you can. So here it talks about instruments or movement and noise. You know, I'm reminded of David and the beautiful story in, in 2 Samuel where they're bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And he does something so crazy and people think he's weird because he does this, but he takes off his clothes. He leaves just one little thing on him. And he, it says he danced with all of his might before the Lord. And it even says that people were scolding him for doing that. But he couldn't help himself. He was unrestrained. He loved the Lord and just danced with all his might is what it says. 2 Samuel 6.14. I want to just probe us for a second into if you were writing Psalm 150 today, let's say you were inspired by God to be the writer of Psalm 150 today in the modern day, what would you exchange for verses three to five in your own words. You know, I, I'm not sure I, I really would have thought of the lute and the harp as the first thing I would praise the Lord with because it probably would not sound very good if I tried to play the lute and the harp to the praise of God. So I, let, me just, let me just go on a rant for a second. I got 23 things. I'm just gonna boom down. Praise God with your voices. Praise God with piano. Praise God with electric guitars. Praise God with hip-hop. Praise God with fashion. Praise God with poetry. Praise God with cooking and baking. Praise God with repairing broken cars. Praise God with home remodeling. Praise God with planting flowers. Praise God with caring for the earth. Praise God with loving your animals. Praise God with our jobs. Praise God with the way we talk to strangers. Praise God when we brush our teeth. Praise God when we watch the news. Praise God with how we speak of others. 
Praise God when we cheer for the Celtics today. Praise God with our thoughts. Praise God with raising our children. Praise God with how we love our spouse. Praise God with what we eat and drink and put into our bodies, etc., etc., etc. Do you get the point? Unrestrained praise of God and all the diversity, whatever you can do, don't be held back from praising the Lord in all that you do. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything exists as a mode of praise as long as it's not sin, right? You know, we talk about the new creation and heaven. One of the maybe overlooked beauties of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like is it says in Revelation 21 verses 24 to 27 that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And it says they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Meaning, I think, that part of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly reality, is we get to bring with it what we make of this world today. That there are beautiful things that we will use our life doing and producing and making and creating that will actually contribute to the glory and the beauty of what will come. Meaning that your work and your life today has value, not just as some like practice, but actually as a contribution to heaven because it's praiseworthy activity. What a invigorating thought. What a challenge to how we spend our work life. We get to bring our glory into it as a contribution and an offering to the praise of God in the new heavens and the new earth. It does say, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever, never enter, will, nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So meaning, it's those pure sacrifices that come to the Lord. Finally, verse six, we come to the last thing. And I, I put this as praise coming from an undivided people. And we live in a divided world, don't we? It's very evident, maybe it'd been never this clear in human history how divided the world is. I mentioned Ukraine and Russia earlier, but um, you could whittle it all the way down to our local context here, just the divisions that exist even in our own communities, our own families, our own homes even. But verse six says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Creation, all of creation, is undivided in one thing, and that is that we exist for the praise of the Lord. We exist for the praise of the Lord. And I would even put it a little bit more precise. Humanity is undivided in one particular sense. We exist for the praise of the Lord because we have been given his breath. In Genesis 2, 7, it says that God breathed his life into the nostrils of the man and he received the breath of life. And I, had, I did some confusing study this week. And again, this is just a moment of pastoral humility before you to say that I don't know all the answers to everything. So I called up a couple of friends who are also pastors and asked them their opinion as well. 
um, there's actually a couple different words for breath in Hebrew. And there's one that's at the beginning of Genesis 1. There's one that talks about the creation of animals and the breath that they have of life. But there's a unique word that's given here for the breath of life for humanity, for men and women, when they are created, when God breathes their breath into his, into his nostrils. And it's the same word that's used here in Psalm 150. That the very breath that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, that brought the breath of God into humanity, that gives us literal life, is the same breath that God asks us to give back in praise to him. I think that means that if our life is not lived in that posture of breathing back out in praise to God, then in some literal or metaphorical sense, we are actually self-suffocating ourselves, that we cannot breathe properly if we're not breathing back out the praise to God. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. If you look throughout the Bible, um, all different types of people that have breath praise the Lord specifically. In Matthew 21, it talks, Jesus talks about babies crying forth praise to God. In Luke 17, foreigners, non-Israelites are talked about praising God. In James 5, he talks about the suffering and the cheerful both praising God. In Revelation 19, it talks about servants who are great and small praising God. And then in multiple places, it says every knee will bow and praise God. Why? Because we have the breath of God in us uniquely. You see, all of us in this room are undivided in the sense of we have been given the image of God because of the breath that he blew into us. And the expectation of that breath that God breathes life into us is to breathe praise back to God, and therefore, in that sense, to actually breathe life back into a dying world. Humans have all been uniquely given the life of God because of this breath he's given us. And I think that affects the way that we treat one another. Again, if we're talking about division, maybe even in this room, I don't know all the relational conflicts in our room, but in our world, certainly, in a world of division and, re and relational strife, sharing that common identity of image of God bearers, breath of God receivers, actually enables us to see each other, not as enemies, but as together. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal especially if he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him, Christ was, is actually hidden in him. Glory himself is truly hidden in other people. What an amazing unifying reality. So let me just finish with this, um, this image for you. You may be asking, you know, why, why should we praise God? And in some sense, I guess the answer has been answered already today as a response to God. But let me put it in another way for you. In Greek mythology, which I took in ninth grade and haven't admittedly read much since, in Greek mythology, there's the story of the sirens. You guys ever heard of the sirens, maybe from your classes in college or high school? But the sirens in Greek mythology were dangerous creatures who lured nearby sailors with enchanting music 
singing voices to shipwreck on the coast of their island. So the idea would be that as boats were driving by, sailing by, uh, the sirens would sing from these rocky coasts and try to lure in these boats with beautiful music. They would enchant them to say, I want to go to that, but actually it would wreck them and destroy them. And there were three ways, at least three ways, but three that I discovered this week that ancient people tried to avoid the sirens. And they're explained in different stories in Greek mythology. One way is um, the story of Ulysses. He told his sailors to put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear the music. If they put wax in their ears, they won't hear it. We'll just keep sailing. But Ulysses himself, and this is the second way, he wanted to hear the music because he heard it was so beautiful. But he said, can you tie me to the ship so that I can't steer the boat to it? I want to hear the music, but I don't want to wreck it because he had heard the stories. So that was the second way, tie himself to the boat. And then there's a third way. And this is the way of Jason and the Argonauts. He brought this musician named Orpheus onto his deck. And he said, I want you to play the most beautiful music that we've ever heard. And I want you to play it loudly so that your beautiful music is showering out, clouding out, making it impossible to hear that music, play more beautiful, loud music so that we're not lured by that. And I think the praise of the living God is that mode for us. But as the allures of the world try to shipwreck us, frankly, the sins of this world, as the Bible describes it, try to shipwreck us, pouring out our breath in praise to God is what Jason and the Argonauts chose to do. It's making beautiful music to God as a way of drowning out sin, avoiding uh, the sirens, not by just trying to pretend it's not there, but by making something more beautiful of the world. And God has given us that as a, the praise of the living God. It is the language of true life itself. All of life is meant for the praise of the living God. And this is all made possible because of the cross of Jesus, which we just talked about during Lent and during Easter. The cross of Jesus enables us to see the full extent of God's praiseworthy affection and love for us. So that when you see that, when you're changed by that, it's an unforced response of praise that overflows. And you look like David, dancing with all your might before God, and people saying, what happened to that person? And you say, I've been transformed by the saving grace of the living God who gave himself for me. When I went to the symphony with Sarah, like I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we loved the music, we were overwhelmed by it, but then something really cool happened and I don't expect it to ever happen again, going back to the symphony. I don't know very much about classical music or about orchestra music, I'm very little but I knew some very famous scores and movies that I had heard. And we went to the Boston Symphony this one random time, listened to the music, wow, this is wonderful. And then they paused in the middle of the service and they said, we just wanna let everybody know that we have a special guest in the audience today. And he's standing, he's sitting right here. Can you stand up, Mr. John Williams? 
who is the composer of things like Jaws and Star Wars and all these famous movie scores. And John Williams stands up and my, my mouth dropped. He's two rows in front of us. And I said, that's amazing that this man made this beautiful music and now he's right here. And in some sense, that's what we as Christians need to remember and, and be filled with awe as well of the symphony that we read about in the Psalms that we'll encounter these next 20 Sundays. There is a, an orchestra director, God himself, who has made creation, made the music of this world, put the breath into our lungs. And when we get introduced to him or see him in front of us, our mouths should drop in awe as well because he is worthy of our affection. Let me close us in prayer, and then we'll approach the Lord's table to conclude our service. God of all creation, thank you for extending yourself in such a way to us that you've given us an unrestrained way to live our life, not for ourselves, but for your glory, because you've given us literal life again. So Lord, as we approach your table for the Lord's Supper today, we pray that this would be a, an embodied reminder of the extent that Jesus went to show us and bring us true life again. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.